He's using a scientific method to interpret all the verses which are using a traditional Vedantic symbols. Universal concrete, sthula sankalpana. From the Western point of view, the old argument always was substance and process. You can go back to the pre-Socratics, Parmenides and Heraclitus. Parmenides was talking of substance, so that never changes. It's always the same, one basic substance. Heraclitus was talking of process, so you do not step into the same river twice. Everything is changing all the time. The world we experience is only a process, it's a change. What is now was not there previously. What is now is yet to be something else. What is not that it is now. What it is now is what it, it was not previously. So this constant change and movement that is going on, we call that the world. But that is only a process, historic process continuously going on, of constant changes happening all the time. Some are slow, some are very quick. A rock will take millions of years to disintegrate, but it is changing. A flower will last for four or five days, that is changing. A human being may last for 80 to 100 years, that's also changing. So there is nothing in the manifested world which is not undergoing transformation and change. So how can transformation and change be the reality? It has to be something more permanent and that is the substance. And in the Vedantic context, the substance never undergoes changes. There is no parinama. This is the difference between Sankhya and Vedanta. In Sankhya there is parinama and the traditional Example of Parinama is milk turning into curd. So it cannot turn back into milk, it has transformed. And so uh, in Vedanta there is no Parinama, it is only Vivarta, it is only a appearance. That basic substance never changes. In Sankhya was an earlier philosophy, it's a dualistic philosophy. So Prakriti and Purusha are there, so two so realities. Undergo that undergoes changes. But you may say the Purusha of the Sankhya system was developed into the Vedantic idea. Without Purusha, Prakriti can't function. You see, the example given is a blind man and a lame person. A lame person and a blind person. So the lame person is Purusha. The blind person is Prakriti. Only when they come together, they can function. Guru Muni points out that they are actually one because they have to come together. Normally the Sankhyan philosophy is taken to be dualistic. Mm. So Prakriti is like the energy, mm. but it has no direction. Mm. It has no intelligence. So it needs an intelligence to, to guide it. That is the lame person. The lame person can sit on the blind person. The lame person can guide the blind person. In a modern context, you can say driving your vehicle. Yeah, Prakriti is your vehicle. It has the energy to go anywhere. But if there is no Purusha there, it won't know where to go. Purusha has no energy to go, but Purusha needs the Prakriti. Prakriti needs Purusha. This kind of dualism is there in the Sankhya system. Two realities. So in the beginning, it is Avyakta. Avyakta is the indistinct. 
in the avyakta stage purusha and prakriti cancel each other out they neutralize each other that is the avyakta means indiscernible before manifestation from there an event takes place and they separate out and prakriti through many stages becomes the world purusha remains independent but in sankhya every person has an independent purusha but a common prakriti prakriti is common to all purusha each one has an individual purusha in vedanta the opposite everybody has the same atman but each one's prakriti with the gunas and karma guna everybody is different so slight changes have happened but vedanta is the final concludes vedanta it is the end so sankhya was the earlier philosophies it was a rationalist philosophy no god just through a principle of enumeration you could make out how from that indiscernible avyakta through mahatahankara and then tanmatras and then antakarna etc you come to the pancha bhutas you get the whole world then patanjali takes those categories and he adds ishvara so yoga has got ishvara but it uses the same sankhyan background epistemology yeah. yoga and sankhya go together sankhya is the first the earliest the early enumerations categorizations that they did was the sankhyans and sankhya has contributed to the other philosophies the guna theories that we speak about is from sankhya that even vedanta accepts the three gunas prakriti we still use pradhana that is a sankhyan idea which shankara discarded and narayan guru has introduced it again in darshanamala pradhana that potency if you read brahma sutras you will see a lot of arguments by shankara to refute to discard pradhana because he was only interested in brahman ilan vital is more like an energy see the ilan vital closest we can bring it bring it to in, in i think something like prana energizing ilan vital and if you study bergson then he is taking a lot of his ideas from pre socratics this whole idea of essence and substance which was the argument in the west so ilan vital belongs to that context it is the essence right it is it is essence but it has got vital vitality is there so that energy is there in that ilan vital is a, is a kind of vital energy so that closer to prana so his idea was that the ilan vital he was uh, criticizing darwin's theory of evolution that darwin's theory is a very mechanistic theory struggle you know survival of the fittest natural selection etc particularly in uh, bergson's refutation he said there is this ilan vital there is a vital energy within a person that will fashion uh, organism as it pleases it doesn't have to struggle for survival and all that and the example he gave was the mollusk the mollusk is a very uh, inferior animal in the darwinian hierarchy it's not developed highly developed but it has a highly developed eye if you see its eye it is very highly developed so his argument was how could a mollusk which is 
lower in the scale of evolution have such a highly developed eye. So he said that this is because the elan vital in the organism will make whatever organ it wants depending on yeah, the requirements. The yes, the environment, whatever the environment demands, that elan vital will create it. So it's from within, it's not some mechanical struggle for existence happening outside there. It's a very horizontal thing. Elan vital is a very vertical uh, energy. So that was a Bergsonian idea. But uh, in, in Sankhya, it is purely an enumeration. I think it's more logical. There is a avyakta, then a mahat. Mahat comes in Atmopadeshatakam also. Great principle. From that comes ahankara. And from the ahankara, you have two branches. One is, uh, goes on the objective side and one comes on the subjective side. The subjective side becomes the mind and the senses. And the objective side becomes the tanmatra. Tanmatra means that can, which can be measured only by itself. So tanmatras are only principles, thing in itself. You don't experience tanmatra. But tanmatra then becomes, by quintuplication, panchi panchi karana becomes the elements. So elements are all a mixture of all the elements. One half is the pure element, the other half is a mixture of all the other elements mm. on the ma in the manifested level. Only in the tanmatras they are pure elements. But the tanmatras cannot be experienced. They are only principles. So one half, if you are talking of earth, prithvi, then one half one half is earth, and the rest half is divided into four segments. And one bit will be akasha, one will be vayu, one will be agni, and one will be up, jal, water. Take water, water, half will be water, other half will be divided again into four parts. And one will be fire, earth, air, and akasha, like that. That is their way of thinking, but it makes sense because that is how the uh, elements are able to combine with each other. If they remain as pure tanmatras, they cannot combine. It's because each element has a bit of the other that they are able to combine. In, this is a, their science of those days. Water can be heated. How does water uh, get heated? If it was tanmatra, you, the heat would never be able to penetrate the water. So it penetrates the water because it has the he water heat element in it. Similarly, it evaporates. Why does water evaporate? Because it has the air element in it. That is how they participate with each other. How does air have smell, fragrance? Because the earth element is there in the, in the air. So when Panchikarna happens, that manifestation happens in the Sankhya system. Meanwhile, Purusha is like a witness, unmoved mover or a catalyst. That is a perfect example. Because of the Purusha, all this happens, but itself it doesn't participate. It's an unmoved mover. It moves, but itself it never, never moves. It doesn't change. A common example is flashlight. You know, each flashlight has got its own batteries. Mm. Purusha is like that. Everybody has their own little purusha element in them, which is animating them. Mm. So the animation part of it is coming from purusha. 
and the physical part is a part of Prakriti. Prakriti is common to all. Prakriti is shared by all. Purushas are individual. That is the Sankhyan system. It's a dualistic system. That is why there are two separate principles. Purusha and Prakriti are two separate principles. And then there are obviously contradictions going to arise because of that, which are all resolved when you come to the Vedanta. In Vedanta, in non-dualism, all these are resolved. There is no duality. How does the duality happen? As he says, it's only an appearance. It's only a vivarta. It's only an adhyaropa. There is only one reality, that is the absolute. And that reality appears to be having undergoing changes. And then they say, where does it come from? That's Maya. Maya is responsible for creating this division, variation among different objects that we see. Here we are told that two broad categories, hmm? asti sadghanam, nasti chetghanam. So, gross and subtle, these are the only two categories. Name and form, form is gross, name is subtle. So, as you go on into this apavada, apavada will refute the superimposition. The first chapter was only about all the aropas, the suppositions. The second chapter is the apavada, the refutation of the supposition, that is unsuperimposition. You are un, you're undoing the superimposition by showing that Chaitanya, when he starts with Chaitanya, he is fo focusing on consciousness. And the last verse here will be Sarvam hi Satchidanandam. So he's reduced everything to Satchidanandam. That is the nature of Absolute. Absolute is called Satchidanandam. In the earlier chapter, when we were reading Integrated Science, we said Astibhati Priyam. So Astibhati Priyam is related to Satchidananda. That means when I say there is this book, it is Asti, it is. That is the Sat aspect. And Bhati, it is looming into my consciousness. It is entering my consciousness as a book. That is the Bhati. So that is related to Chit. And the Ananda aspect, that is related to the value. That this is an important book, precious book. That is the Priya aspect. So Satchidananda vertically, Astibhati Priyam horizontally. Sarvam hi Satchidananda means he's bringing you down to the found, fundamental, the real foundation, which is Satchidananda. On that foundation, you are imposing, superimposing that this world was created, it has a beginning, and all those other arguments for the world. Five internal and five external. So that is the scheme between the first and the second chapters. Then third one, when he comes to third asatya, then he that chapter is help to help you recognize the false. Asatya darshana. How do you recognize falsehood? That is the asatya. Asatya. So that will come later. But here mainly is refutation of through arguments. The second one will say, apart from cause, effect, it's, it's satkaranavada. This is in Shankara's. Mm -hmm. So apart from cause, how can there be an effect? 
effect is not different from the cause. So cause alone is real, satkarana. The karana, the cause is real, sat. The ones who follow satkarana, that satkarana vada. The doctrine of cause alone is real. Effect is not different from cause. So here what is the cause? Yes, whatever consciousness that we will come to. But he's pointing out the world we see as an effect, that is not that is only an effect. That effect is not different from the cause. So we always we have to go to the cause. The cause here is Satchit Ananda. Sarvam hi Satchidanandam. Everything is Satchidanandam. In the other last concluding verse there, he said, Sarva eva paraha, no? Everything is that alone. So he's taking you to that one. And then next chapter, it begins with Chaitanya. So taking you into consciousness. So whether you call it Brahma or Shiva, Vishnu or Shiva. Sarva eva saha. He also says, Dhana deva go yasmat. So concrete. So here in the explanation, he said seed, you had one seed, that was the beginning, and the tree, both belong to the concrete. So even the concrete is put into the category of belonging to the phenomenal side, creation side. And it is called sthula sankalpana mai, no? later on he will call it sthula sankalpana, that is consciousness of the gross. When we say something is gross, it is the consciousness of gross that we speak about. No gross thing is entering into us, no? A solid thing cannot enter into me. Only its qualities, its, uh, its value as something gross, that idea is in my head that that is something gross. Sthula Sankalpana. Sankalpana is a imagination, sthula of grossness. So, universal, concrete, universal concrete of which this body also belongs to that universal concrete. So that is how we'll get into Apavada. But I think tomorrow we can read the introduction. So we should read one one introduction and that will give us the transition. So he is following the traditional Vedanta system that is Shankara's Adhyaropa. And there are so many examples, the snake in the rope, silver in the pearl, and pot and clay, all of them show how our mind tends to suppose that something is there. When a stimulation comes, the stimulation, it is just raw, raw energy coming into us. When I see something, hear something, it is only physical energies that are coming, which have just physical impacts on the sense organ. How is that physical thing transformed into an object or into some meaning or into some value? That is all being done by our consciousness. Psychology of Darshanama, there is applied psychology. That very point we have to understand that what is taken for granted as a life experience when carefully examined will reveal itself to be a superimposition. Is opening sentence itself. That is a very important concept to first understand that how the superimposition, adhyasta, is happening and the whole of this philosophy stands on that simple thing of superimposition. Mm -hmm. If you don't have superimposition, nothing else will work.
When you say the world is unreal, then how is it unreal? Or why is it unreal? It's because of the superimposition. Why is there so much of differences or individual experiences? They are all superimposition. Then you go back deeper because of vasana, conditioning. So what is our goal? It's a deconditioning ourselves. How is a person going to become free? Is by neutralizing those conditioning factors. That is also called upadhi, limiting adjunct. The beauty of these texts are these ideas have been put into uh, in scientific language. So lingua mystica into lingua scientifique. That was the Guru's project. Lingua mystica, because all this is mystical language that the Upanishads are speaking of or philosophical, Indian philosophy is the mystical. And the modern mind is now a scientific mind. All, whether we like it or not, our thinking has become even if we have not studied science, by interacting with the modern world, you have to consciously or unconsciously adopt some scientific ways of thinking. And these books were taking modern Western developments in mind. How to bring Vedanta into the modern world. The modern world is a Western world. How do we bring ancient Vedanta into a modern context? So there is psychology is one gateway where you can make a connection because in the West they, they went as far as psychology in the modern world. Coming out of religion, they suffered a lot for thousand years by, by the dominance of religion, which India doesn't suffer from that, which destroyed much of their uh, mystical life, their uh, so many problems it created anyway. So. The emergence out of that was science. Science basically destroyed the church. Two things destroyed the church. One was the Protestant movement, that was an internal thing, and science from outside. So the power of stranglehold of the church started declining, and the power of science started increasing. In the 1920s, 30s, 40s, it was assumed that science is going to resolve all the problems of the world. And science is the way to go. So every important thinker or important person was following science. And science was impacting philosophy also. So people like Hegel, Descartes, all these people were also getting affected by scientific thinking. When you come to Vedanta, how do we bring Vedanta into compatibility with science? So psychology is one way. When Freud made the discovery that there is an unconscious mind, what was thought of as witches and uh, mental problems, possession, possession by devil, all those kind of thinking was there in the religious time. Freud discovered that it is the suppression of the unconscious. And he found out that the unconscious, there is something like an unconscious and that people suppress it. If there is something, if a person has a certain urge to do something and realizes that that's not compatible with the society, then that person will repress it, suppress it. That suppression will go into the unconscious. Then he will forget what he, why he did that. But it is sitting in the unconscious. Sitting in the unconscious, it is then start affecting the person's behavior. And he won't know why he is behaving in a certain way. Freud discovered that and his method of treatment was to make them lie on a couch comfortably and start talking. Keep on talking, talking, talking. And by that, 
After a few sessions, what used to happen, that person used to recollect the incident which made him repress something. And the moment he releases that, he becomes cured. So the whole psychoanalysis thing started, therapy and psychoanalysis. This is before the drugs came in. Drugs came in later. Regression therapy, past life therapy, all sorts of things. But basically it was going into your unconscious, helping you to explore the unconscious. How do you explore the unconscious? You can do it in a simple way by analyzing your dreams also. You can remember your dreams and you know, make a notebook of dreams and you can see some, something coming from your unconscious. You can study your unconscious basically. But otherwise it is not accessible. So psychotherapy was a way which he developed to un un unlock the unconscious. So psychology became a very important field and started affecting all other disciplines also, the psychological method. So here we are seeing uh, Darshanamala through a psychological lens, as a psychology. And they don't have a concept of superimposition. They have a concept of repression. As we said, no ego, id and superego. That was a Freudian uh, division. Then Jung was a student of Freud, but he disagreed with Freud, with uh, certain doctrines of Freud. Freud was obsessed with uh, sexuality also. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jung decided that there is a deeper aspect. So he went into much of Eastern thinking, mandalas, collective unconscious, personal unconscious, archetypes. So there is a whole Jungian school also, which is quite different from the Freudian school. In Shankara it is Adhyastha. Adhyastha is the basic thing which, which he starts working. Projection. Snake in the rope. Adhyasa. And that is Adhi, as he says, Adhi Aropa. Adhyaropa. Supposition. And you can catch, we can catch ourselves doing it hundreds of times. We get a stimulation and the first thing you do is adhiropa, prejudicial. Mm. 